The date, September 11th, will forever evoke recollections of unimaginable tragedy. Nearly 3,000 people died in the terrorist attacks on that date in 2001. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. Psychotherapist Edie Nathan was called upon on 9-11 to tend to the emotional well-being of first responders at the site of the terrorist attacks in Lower Manhattan, known at the time as Ground Zero. Edie joins us today to talk about the grief and trauma of 9-11 and how that reverberates in her lives 17 years later. Her newly published book is called It's Grief, The Dance of Self-Discovery Through Trauma and Loss. Edie, thanks so much for coming in. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So how vividly do you remember the morning of 9-11-2001? I remember it as in my, in my body. I remember it as if in some ways it happened yesterday when I recount it, you know, when I remember. And I couldn't get into the city. I was actually out, out of the city, and there was no way to get into the city. When I woke up on 9-12, however, trains were running, and that was when I was able to run in. But 9-11, I felt trapped. I felt like a prisoner in my own home because I couldn't do anything. Now, I know that that's a feeling that everybody had. The grief, sitting alone with it, not being able to even get anyone on the phone, uh, was terrifying. Um, And it, it felt to me as if I... If I couldn't do something, I was I was just going to go almost emotionally crazy. It was such a need to to be out there, do something, even if I was in danger. So you volunteered your I services? I did. I volunteered. So on 9-12, ha, huh, the 9-12, yeah, it, it, I got onto a train. The trains were running miraculously. I got myself to the Red Cross on uh, in the city and... Uh, they put me into a room of doctors, social workers, because we we all thought, oh, we're going to be able to help the survivors. We're going to be able to do something. And there was a lot of chaos there. Uh, Of course, there's always going to be some chaos. From the chaos of that room, I actually ended up uh, being moved to a hospital trying to help figure out really the triage of what of of helping people from medical which of course was not my area to psychology which was more my area. So where were you stationed at first in Lower Manhattan? So initially I was at the armory and w- before the army armory I was at the hospital. Uh and from the hospital it was uh on the uh west side and we were we were shifting from hospital to hospital, so it's too many to really even go into. But then I was moved to the armory. Once I got to the armory, again, they were triaging. They were trying to figure out what to do with all of these families who were being told to report, at least in the Manhattan area, to that armory. So I could see that there was just there was disorganization, and I ended up manning a room. I don't even know how it happened. I have no idea. But I ended up manning a room with telephones, social workers, trying to call families, trying to tell them that, you know, they had no news, trying to help family members calm down. And I was in that room for two or three days. After that two or three day period, a uh, policewoman, a lieutenant, I don't remember her name, frankly, She was wonderful, and she said, we need your help. And I didn't exactly know what that meant. All I knew was to follow her. So I followed her, and she said, 
you're going down to ground zero. I even as I talk about it right now, I have chills uh, because it was what I, I, I. And she said, "We need we need people down there." So a group of us uh, formed a collective, and we were taken uh, by police caravan down to the area, and the the road was lined with people applauding us, which felt surreal and why it's like there's nowhere else to be and and yet there were vendors as well and all of these vendors were offering clothing and and hats and then we were fit for some kind of mask it might have it 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 was really to help because they knew even though they weren't talking about it the air was not safe to breathe Mm -hmm. So they fit us with these masks. I, I, it, there comes a point, though, I think, where you make a decision. Are you going to try to talk to people through the mask or do you take the mask off or what, what do you do? I ended up in the basement of what had been the old American Express building. And the restaurant, so we're in sub-level, well, at basement level, the the restaurant had all the chairs, all the tables, the coffee maker, as if where were the people? They were not there. Like like a bomb had dropped and all the people had gone. But there, there was an essence of life. There was an essence of being, of, uh, it, it was, again, surreal. And where we were was actually an entrance and exit way for the men who were volunteering to go into what was called the pits because it was dark, it was dreary, it was dusty, and they were looking. They were looking. They were searching, searching for bodies, for for people who were alive, for people who were buried under the rubble. And these men, they didn't want to leave. They And yet they were being told after 12 and 24-hour shifts, you need to go. You need to leave. You need to go home. You need to get rest. So I I was there for quite a while. And you were there to tend to the emotional needs of these first responders. Yes, and that's exactly why I was there. And I was with two other psychologists. And when the men, there were no women in the pits. Uh, So it's not a sexist statement. It's just a fact that, that these men were coming out. They were... They were firemen, they were electricians, they were uh, metal workers. I mean, they, they, they came from all over. And we were to kind of help reorient them, find out if they needed anything, find out. I, I, I spoke of this. There was one gentleman I worked with for probably about an hour and a half. Couldn't remember where he had parked his car. Where's my car? Where's my car? And it was really through going back and envisioning how did you get here? How did you come? What, what, what were you wearing? What did you eat before you got here? And we were actually able to track very, very slowly how he had gotten there. And then he remembered. It was like a, a eureka moment, you know. He's like, I know where my car is. I parked it in the tunnel. I know where it is. And 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 he cried and he left. And I, I, I never got his name. You know, it was not about a name. It was just about grounding and orientation and breath. And 
helping these men just get get back on their feet in some way. How would you describe their emotional state overall while they were toiling through the debris? Tunnel vision. Tunnel vision. I just, I have a, I have a goal. My goal is to find people alive, and I am going to do anything I can to try to find these people. And the sadness, the feelings of numbness and shock and, and dismay, and maybe some detachment, which are all phases of grief, uh, I would say that that's what was going on with them. What conversations besides the one you mentioned would you say stick out most in your head all of these years later? The conversations of I can't believe this. I tried to find people I couldn't. And 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 helping them to realize that that wasn't their fault. It it, it was no fault of, of of theirs that they couldn't find a body or they couldn't find someone live when I say a body a, a live human they they just wanted to be able to say oh, I, I uncovered the rubble and and there he she that there they were and 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 I'm going to be able to walk them out and help them and and so would you say it's then disbelief that they couldn't find someone disbelief. or guilt that they didn't a little bit of both great question a little bit of both dismay, disbelief, how could this be, uh, even a, a shattered hope, a a sense of failure. These are, you know, all of the men who are in the pits are used to helping people and, and that's their badge of honor, you know. I am, I'm, I'm here to help. I'm, I'm here to, to work my magic and their magic, uh, no one had magic that day. How do you talk someone through that when they're dealing with all of those emotions? You you meet them where they're at. You meet them exactly where they're at. And what that means is you listen, you hear their words. Sometimes people don't even have the words. You look at their breathing. If it's breath, and, and some of the men who came out, they were having trouble breathing, just even catching their breaths, finding their voices. They were hoarse. They were coughing. Uh, their, their eyes were out of focus. So sometimes you can't go to the words. You've got to go to the body. And the body speaks volumes. It tells us the agitation, the anxiety. I can count breaths. So that's one of the things that I did. I would count breaths. I would... Oh, okay. So his breathing is really rapid. We before I'm going to get this guy to talk, we need to calm him down. Get him really much more settled. And if they needed a phone, if they needed to call someone, we made sure that 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 occurred as well. You mentioned tunnel vision. I would imagine it's easier when you're actually still tasked with doing a job. But then there's the aftermath. It's all over and you're back home and you're reliving what you went through. On one hand, there's a survivor's guilt. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's a it's a guilt for having lived, for having survived something so horrendous and not wishing death, but not knowing what to do with your aliveness. And that the grief that accompanies someone who has seen a disaster such as 9-11 it can take years to, 
to get regrounded, to get reassimilated to who you are, what you want to do in life, uh, with your family, with your children. There's an appreciation of of things that you might not have appreciated, even to be able to take a breath. Uh, the children, there were over 3,000 children that were left. And these children, oh, they, some of their stories are, are riveting because though they may have never even met their fathers or their mothers, they are probably a little bit wiser than their peers and they're appreciating life they're 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 making things happen happen they're they actually some of them created a documentary and that documentary was about what they've done to pay the lives of those parents forward some went into the police force some became firemen uh, some decided to go into higher education so they're paying forward the lost lives of their parents and it, the survivors, the the men who came out of the pits, many of them were paying it forward, and and unfortunately, some of them, and I don't have the numbers, but some of them are are now dealing with the effects of having been in the pits, with cancer diagnoses, and having to really struggle with a chosen life of I'm going to help others and and the air that ultimately is devastating to the lives that they now have and the cancers that they are facing. How much of your work was focused on those affected by 9-11 after those days that you spent down there at Ground Zero? I would say for the first year, I, I was inundated with uh, people in New York who were affected by it, um, on the periphery, and then it seemed that people went into hiding, which is not unlike a grief reaction. Sometimes it takes a while. Six years later, I started getting calls again. I don't know why six years. Was that around an anniversary specifically, the six-year anniversary? Specifically, it's usually it does. And, you know, we were every year for 10 years. There were the names and 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 just the day was devoted to recognizing the bravery of all of the men and women and their children um, and their and the aunts and the uncles who were lost. So th- that dedication just kept going every year. And though it's a wonderful dedication, it would it's a reminder. And that reminder, it's like it's not going to go away. It's not going to go away. That first year, after 9-11, about I would say six weeks, maybe it was two two months in New York, we we had an explosion. It was on the east side, and everyone thought, oh, my God, it's happening again. So we were traumatized as a, as a city. Uh, I, I, I think any city that felt it around the Pentagon, you know, Washington, we, we anyone who, who heard it, felt it, any sound – the lights going out. We went dark, and that was maybe six to eight months. I don't have my timeline exactly right, but there were things that were happening that continued to alarm us, that continued to keep us on edge, on our toes, in in grief, yes, but 
but mainly in that first phase of grief where you're in shock, you're in dismay, you're in a, a, a sense of, of hysteria, but it's a internal. It's not necessarily being externalized. Let's talk about the phases of grief. How many phases of grief are there? Well, I see that there are 11, and I'm not going to go into all of the 11, but let me say that that the first phase of numbness and despair and, and, and hysteria, detachment, these, these, this, these phase, this phase is a phase that people will go back to every time they move into different phases. And the phases are layered. You know, there's role confusion, there's anger, and, and there's rage, and there's um, forgiveness and grace. And grace is the last one. And grace is not about forgetting. And it's not necessarily religious, although for some people it might be. It's really meant as a sense of calming. It's a meant of a, a, a sense of, of of grounding. And these phases, we will move in and out of them like a dance. And that dance is poetic. It's a mosaic, and it's individual, like one's fingerprint. I was going to ask you how individual is grief, because I'm sure we all deal with grief differently. So you. You know how our fingerprints, like no one has the exact same fingerprint? It's the same way with grief. And in my book, It's Grief, The Dance of Self-Discovery Through Trauma and Loss, that's really what I address is no matter what you are dealing with, it's grief, it's going to be, it's your grief. And I'm never going to tell anybody they're doing it wrong. They're doing, doing it right for them. And that's all that matters. They're doing it right for them. And there's no timeline. For some people, okay, a year, and they've integrated it. I don't look at acceptance. I actually don't believe in the word acceptance. I believe in you're going to integrate it. You're going to learn to be with it, but it's not going to obstruct your life. It's not going to create a, 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 a stop, a stop sign that says, okay, no living. It's actually going to enrich you in some way and it's a it can be a gift just like these kids a lot of the kid the survivors these some of these children from from that have that lost parents and aunts and uncles some of whom weren't even born when their parents died and those those children they 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 want to be brave like their mother or their father. They, they, they want to honor the life, and it causes them to, to be big, to peacock in a way that yes, are they grieving? Will they, will they grieve? Yes, but they walk with it like a badge, and that can be grief too. It doesn't always need to be this, the depth of, of, of sadness. Yes, but of depression or anxiety or anger or rage it it can actually look peaceful yet you recognize it what are the warning signs that grief has taken an unhealthy turn it can be different for men than for women because women will often have a support system that is different than men that's not cross the board it's just sometimes there are differences in the sexes if you find that you are normally an extrovert, you more normally just kind of go out there, but now you're more introverted, you just want to stay to yourself, you're drinking more, you're eating more, 
you're doing drugs, you're, you have alienated family, those would be signs. If there's been like a 9-11 or there's been the loss of a spouse or a loss of a partner or you've lost a limb or you've lost a loved one through the loss of just a relationship, a breakup, that these, these are all elements that can cause a great grief reaction, and I call them the big Gs. So the, the, the physical manifestation, six to 18 months after, after a big loss, you can find that you might be getting sick. You might have low resistance to colds, to viruses. You might feel that all you want to do is sleep, that you're massively depressed. And you need to kind of assess who you are. Are you, are you more uh, comfortable in a group setting? Then go find a group. If you're more comfortable one-on-one, then find a therapist or find a group of people you trust who you want to talk with. Uh, don't do it alone. I, I, we get in our own way. And getting in our own way, you know, it, it stops us from living the lives we want to live. And you don't want grief to hold you. You want to hold it. What's your advice for taking that first step for someone who is just struggling to get out of bed in the morning? If you know that you're struggling to get out of bed, if you've got anyone you know who you trust share it. You are obviously in so much pain and the darkness has surrounded you and the grip is on you. Call it the grip of grief. And if you, if you can do anything, reach out. If that feels hard, if even that feels hard, then I would advise that you go to the hospital. There are urgent care hospitals now that really they they're they're smaller than a hospital they they're the doctors and the nurses there can sometimes really help assess what's going on and you can often be triaged to to get the help that you need you you don't want to hurt yourself you don't and and I know you might want to you know you you just the the hurting of the self whether it's through drugs, whether it's sometimes it's, it's cutting, sometimes it's through overeating, you're just trying to numb. You're just trying to numb all the feelings. So if you're fine that you're just trying to, to numb out and you can't reach out, go seek out someone online if you need to be anonymous, a chat room, just to hear what other people are talking about around grief. Read a book. There can be, you know, and, and if you're depressed, it might be hard to read, but maybe there is one sentence that can help. And again, go seek out help. You mentioned that some people can forgive, other people get angry. What about those people who hang on to the anger? How do you let go of the anger? Thinking about a loved one who may have died on 9-11, you're angry. You might still be angry 17 years later. You, you might still be angry. And that anger is anger turned in on the self. It, some people wear their anger as also that badge of honor, like, look, look what I've gone through. And it keeps them exactly where they are. And maybe, maybe they just, that's what they need to do. And it's not 
my role to necessarily get them out of that. It is, it serves a purpose. And maybe they get attention around it, or maybe it actually quiets their anxiety. Because oftentimes, the other side of anxiety is anger. And it's easier sometimes to feel the anger than it is to feel the anxiety. So I would want someone to explore it. I'd talk with them about that anger. And anger, unexplored, can often turn into rage. And that rage can either turn outward toward another or can turn inward. And externalized anger can really be ugly. You know, we see it road rage. Uh, we, 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 we see spouses hurting one another or, or, or parents hurting their kids or, or acting out at work. Learning how to gauge your anger, number it. I actually, I actually talk about it in the book. There are exercises that, you, that anyone can do. Such as what? Such as, okay, what am I, the first question is, what am I angry with? Is there anything I can do about it? Yes, no. If there is something I can do about it, what is it? How can I plan not a revenge, but an action? Will exercise help me? Because certainly we know that exercise is a wonderful way to stimulate the brain, help the brain get out of out of the, the negative impulses, and and actually start to heal some of the the, 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 what we carry in the body, that anger. So I highly recommend exercise. Exercise, go to the gym, do it on your own, lift weights, work with rubber bands. Uh, so that's, a, that's certainly something that you can externalize and do and you own it. You own it, right? The other, the other thing is, if, if that's not something you want to do, again, going to a therapist, doing something called EMDR, which stands for eye movement, desensitization, and restructuring. Very long, but it's actually a brain changer. And there are therapists who who do this type of work that can help people who have been traumatized and hold on to an emotion, so much so that it's eating them alive. How raw do you think emotions are 17 years later for many people? I think it depends on the person. That rawness may come up like a hiccup and recede. And I would expect that. The rawness, though, is a, it's momentary as opposed to a longevity where it's just, it's on and up. It's going up and up and up the mountain and, and it just, there's, there's, there's no going back. I think the, the rawness comes and then it recedes. Just like the very first question you asked me about, about 9-11 do I got chills? That's my rawness, right? I got I got a pit in my belly. That's my rawness. Do I walk around with it? No. Do I carry it? No. Did I recognize it? Yes. What about your own emotional well-being, having witnessed all of that at Ground Zero and working with those individuals? People are resilient. And my work, yes, is around grief. But it's also around resilience. It's, a, it, 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 it's around the magic of, of the force of the human being, of just how resilient we are and how we can be in the depths of, of loss, of grief, of anger, of depression. And in time, when working with the self and working through it, 
in in steps and encouraging the soul to to tackle it and not be afraid of it i feel that i'm actually working with the resilience yes i'm working with the grief i am working with the resilience and the goal is i i can't wait to see that person walk out of my office with their head high their shoulders back knowing that they've learned how to dance with their grief how to walk with it how to nurture it nurture it yet honor it how important is it to face your fears and by that i mean say someone lost a loved one in lower manhattan on 911 2001 but will never go down there will never go to the memorial can't do that or someone who may have witnessed the devastation on that day and will never go down there should they go down there should they face it i always say don't should on yourself there is no should so do what's right for you absolutely if it's not right for you what happened downtown whether you're there or you're not you visit or you don't it's still in your heart it's still in your gut it's still in your memory if you don't want to go down if you've left this city and many did there was a grand exodus <laughs> and uh, people don't want to come back here i get it i couldn't imagine leaving and that was me and and i think that there's everything in between I think you already touched on this, but how important is it to talk about grief, to talk openly about it? A lot of people are afraid to talk about things like death and grief. It's important if it's important to you. I really suggest to people, own it, share it. It's time to take grief out of the closet. And again, your book is called It's Grief, The Dance of Self-Discovery Through Trauma and Loss. Edie Nathan, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Psychotherapist Edie Nathan is online at edienathan.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Bolarki. Thanks so much for listening.